0: Smart Counsel is a joint production of Multnomah University Alternative Behavioral Therapy and New Pattern Counseling. Joshua Moore is a counselor at Alternative Behavioral Therapy in Vancouver, Washington, who specializes in neurofeedback and trauma. Reese Pasimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in addictions, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Thanks for listening and for joining the conversation.
1: Welcome to Smart Council, Story Informed Trauma Therapy. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources for providers and students on spirituality, and mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese. I'm Joshua. And we are here with very special guest, Diane Moore. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Glad you're here. Yeah. yeah. Good to be
2: here. Thanks for the invite.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, so you and Josh, you two, you you two go back a little ways, don't yeah. you? How did you hear about me?
2: Way back. We no. go way, way back. <laughs> Decades. So, uh, For those who don't know, Josh is my middle son. True.
1: <laughs> yes, indeed.
2: <laughs> Talk about, you know, we got family stuff going on here. We might need some counseling, but...
3: Yeah. And so we are Multnomah alumni, and what's your connection to Multnomah?
2: I'm a Multnomah alumni, too. Uh,
3: yes. Okay. Yeah. I, and was, a, I was
2: actually uh, some kind of young alumnus or whatever of the year. You were cohort one. I, w- I got a little plaque or something. Yes. Yeah, and I was cohort one. You yes. sat next to me in cohort one. Yes, I did. Every single Every week single if class. you would tolerate it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, sometimes he'd run away from me. But, um, yeah, breeze in, breeze out.
1: Yeah, good times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, very- and now... Nowadays, what is your corner of the mental health world or the counseling world? Well, I have
2: private practice and I'm in Vancouver, Washington, and I'm full almost all the time. So like this week I had an opening open up and within three hours it was filled. Yeah.
3: So do you and have so like that, a and website full, and advertising? Uh, <laughs> or what? what is it you do? I don't
2: have a website. That would. Here's the deal. Okay, yeah. When people call me, I want to talk to them on the phone. I'm not like these young whippersnappers who have websites and all that crap. Yeah, business I, cards. Like I don't even idea. have business cards. I haven't <laughs> had business cards in five years because then people would call me. I always say, really, really smart people find me and I go by referral. Part wow. of my success, <laughs> and I'm sorry to say I'm not broad, I'm very narrow, is that the people who find me... They know exactly how I work, and I don't have to spend a lot of time saying, okay, talking them into them, and then, you know, they're come prepared to do the kind of work that I do, and I like that, but I also like when people call to spend a lot of time with them to take the time to give them good referrals, and I think, man, if I had a website or I had cards out there, I would get so many more calls per week that I would be overburdened. I get a nice little hum of uh, mm-hmm. messages and um, I take care of those and give good referrals. And I've started to surround myself with really good people. My son happens to be one of them. But we've got about 10 therapists in our group and we actually are moving this in a couple of weeks to a new facility. But we, we're like-minded and we can refer amongst ourselves. Not always because we refer out too, but I'm well, we'll pretty to... sure we'll,
3: we'll get to this, but there's various specialties <clears throat> within the building, including acupuncture, massage, etc.
2: Oh, yeah. They're that not all therapists like a... exactly. Great. A lot of, and we respect the differences. We have one of us, we tease, and she's so, so seriously uh, uh, tough. She's a tough, tough therapist. We tease her that she doesn't have empathy, but she does. But she acts <laughs> like she does. But she does her court work, and that's important. She's oh, She can do what she needs to do, and she can get in there and, um, can I say kick court butt? You know? mm-hmm. I think you yeah. say it.
1: Sometimes the court butt needs to be kicked.
2: Yes, it does. <laughs> and the All client right. butt sometimes. <laughs> yeah, a little <laughs> do, bit, get yeah. Get in there and, and do what they All need right. to do.
1: So you right. are uh, very tangible, analog, no cards, <laughs> no website, uh, by yeah. referral. Uh, how long did it take you to get to this part this point where you can do that well
2: i did i I, we went to the same court and i was doing a radio show at that point and um in midway and that's why i was getting my master's i had no intention of being in private practice it didn't sound like me Mm -hmm. and then i met steve stevens and i'm like "Eh, i'm kind of like him and so i'm like i want to do that and then i don't want to do the radio show anymore and so I quit the radio show, and they talked and me here into here. Going- you are <laughs> on a- yeah. And, <laughs> I on a podcast. and so my practice in my in my internship, I immediately had like twelve people, and that's full time. I felt so full at, at twelve, and then as I got closer to graduation, I got up higher numbers, higher numbers. I don't even want to tell you how many I had because it might have been problematic to have too many as an intern I don't know but I had been a registered counselor in Washington state so I wasn't from you know I wasn't working from scratch but by the time I graduated I had a full
1: that's pretty nifty Mm -hmm. so tell me a little bit more or tell us a little bit more about what that specific golden specialty is that you do
2: well, it's not my goal and specialty, but I do find myself working with trauma a lot. I think all therapists run into it, um, and I ran into it. And I wanted to do a good job. I had also worked as a registered counselor in the state of Washington for ten, a decade, and so I I didn't I had didn't have a master's, and so I worked at a lower level, like for, through nonprofits and Youth for Christ and other nonprofit, and I I watched people go to counseling and I got good counselors and I would still meet with the people I had mentored them and they were in counseling and I would listen to what the counselors would say in their offices because I was privy to a lot of to hear what was happening in the counseling office and some counselors were really good and this one particular counselor I was like wow he's brilliant And so when I got my master's level, I started doing some training around that. And he's actually the originator of Story Informed trauma Therapy. And he started it years and years, decades and decades ago. But it it became something that was uh, researched at Katrina. Remember Katrina in Louisiana? The hurricane. Yeah, he went and helped there. And they liked what he did so much that they, they had him train all the the therapists and he kept going back it's a long-term therapy and so he kept going back and he trained the therapist trained the therapist every time he go and they did research on that because there's a large group of people going through trauma and then now they are working in houston with story informed trauma therapy okay
1: so uh, what was this fellow's name who
2: his name is byron kayler byron kayler yes yeah and he 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 does not either have a website or anything because he's always full
1: although i think i have found him online before (laughs)
2: Yeah he he, yeah, he he has been online. But now I said, you know, you got to give me a website. And he says, I don't have one. You can give my phone number. And oh, okay. that's, you know, he's old like me. So okay. he's actually older than me.
1: <laughs> I, I believe it. Yes, yeah. uh, Baron Kaler was one of my first teachers as well. And one of the influences that propelled me to consider psychology mm-hmm. and counseling as safe and wonderful and yeah. lots of good things. Uh, no, uh, was Byron? Did you say he was the originator of story informed trauma therapy? He has
2: coined the term. He's coined the term. There's lots of and the thing that says story informed trauma therapy is it's stage driven. So you want to learn from the master. You learn those stages in the order that he gives them. Sometimes I find they don't always come that way, and he would agree with that. But to really train in it, you learn the nine. He, he's got a nine stage. There are there are other stage. Uh, theories out there there's a three stage and a five stage I think but this nine stage is I feel like w- more um my I it agrees more with the things that I chose in, in uh, my master's level to focus on which is one is existential which means I want to go all the way to purpose and meaning I want people to go from not just like I was hurt and now I'm healed to have that, I can put place that trauma in my story and see where it drives some really positive things. It's it's all upended now, and I've got strengths, and I work from those strengths. And yeah,
1: so it's a stage theory, or yes. it's okay. a stage theory. Okay, cool.
2: <clears throat> yeah, not like a developmental stage, but um. no, it's uh, you know, when you have a person who's traumatized, you need to go through these stages, and there's some predictable. Things that will come up and you want to go all the way to the end. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: So definitely want to hear hear what the stages are. But really quickly summarizing. So what is story-informed trauma therapy in Mm -hmm. one or two sentences?
2: Yeah. It just means that when a person has had a trauma, it changes how they organize their world and how they uh, react to the world. They either reenact it over and over again, or they react it and cause kind of a leapfrog effect for different things in their life. And um, so to unpack that, to heal it, we have to go back to the story, and we have to systematically look at it, not the things people tell us, but have a systematic way to go and get what they wouldn't think to tell us, because in those details, uh, is embedded the error messages, the lies that we have come to believe about ourselves in the world,
1: in the details of the trauma story,
3: in itself. the
2: details of the trauma story. Oh, okay. Yeah, and would that, it
3: be would it mm-hmm. be okay to press you for an example? Sure, one that isn't real, hopefully. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll have to try to think of one that's very benign and very you know transmutable. So there's a big difference when you are taken by surprise and brutalized by a stranger. That gives you a whole set of the world's not safe. I'll, maybe I'll grow up, and one of the things I do is I make my world safe. I work in the safest place possible, and I make my world safe, and I marry the safest person possible, but my life is shut down, and I don't have any friends, and then the trauma comes, and it intrudes anyway at some point. Maybe when my child gets the same age is when I experience that trauma. Right. That's a whole system. The details. We have to go to the details of you don't like surprises. You found out that it wasn't safe to have a social thing because when when you were assaulted, you were with friends and not family. So you learned all these things, and we have to unlearn them as you encounter them. Right. That one
1: event of being <laughs> assaulted by a stranger says... Mm-hmm. No surprises, no relationships, Mm -hmm. no adventures. Mm -hmm. Keep everything
2: battened down with serious control. If it was a dad or an uncle or something like that, then family becomes dangerous. And, or we become feel responsible and we reenact that unconsciously if we don't remember it or react to it. And so that's just a little example.
1: So, so events like that happen and those are the trauma stories mm-hmm. and each of those then gives birth to unhealthy narratives or detrimental maladaptive narratives mal-adaptive. that come out of those. Yep. Like I can't trust anyone. Mm-hmm. I can't get close to anyone. Stuff like that.
2: Which were brilliant when you were a child.
1: Cause they got you through sure. without getting hurt more.
2: And I have to keep going back cause there's a lot of shame in how they built their world. And I have to keep going back to, no, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. It's just not brilliant now. But look how brilliant you are because you're here. You want to dismantle this. I would
1: agree. And I've said similar things when teaching a relapse prevention class in a, a men's residential treatment for addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, there, There's fellows who are really reluctant to show emotion or to trust because they come from living on the streets or they come mm-hmm. from being incarcerated. And they're very open about how in those environments you don't trust, you don't open up, you don't be mm-hmm. vulnerable, because legitimately in those environments that would get them killed. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about how, yeah, in that in that time and place, you needed those maladaptive skills mm-hmm. because they were adaptive in that point. Right. And yeah. then they you, got survived. You, point. you survived. Congratulations. yes. But now you're in a different context, yeah. and it's good to but be able to. But if you
2: want to build a different life, you have to have different skills. If you keep those maladaptive, you're going to keep finding yourself in the same place.
1: Right. And that's where those nine stages come in? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What are the nine stages?
2: I don't know them all by heart. I should have brought my big, huge binder. I mean, it's an enormous binder and it's intensive. Right now I'm in a, I've been trained on this before, but I'm in a more intensive training. It takes eight months every Wednesday night for two hours. It's
3: not necessarily appropriate for clients to know the nine stages.
2: Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. No, no, no. So if this is for clients to listen to, you're right. No, but it just is really organized in that you spend a certain amount of time. The first stage is you build this therapy box, you get them in. And I've been encouraged in this new round of training To spend the time, especially if I know I'm going to spend years with these clients, to really do an informed consent, that informed consent could take a session or a session and a half, just me telling them everything about what to expect. They need to know what my face is gonna look like if they text me because they've had an ab reaction outside of session. They need to know how I'm gonna behave if I see them in public and how I'm gonna think even. They need to know how if they're on their way and they're late um, to let me know or not need to let me know if they're late and how long I'm going to sit in that office waiting for them, not angry, but I just wait 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I will and, and I tell them even, if you're late, I will text you at 10 after and it will say, I had you for 11 o'clock today, are you okay? That's exactly the text and they know they're going to get it and they know they are not to respond to that if they're driving, they don't have to, that I'm just going to be there and I'm not angry with them. Try so hard to set up this room that feels as different from the unhealthy system that they came from
1: you're creating a whole new healthy system
2: and that's stage one okay yeah
1: okay and the others are secret mysteries yeah, yeah. and then stage <laughs> wow.
2: two we begin to take history which is is, is intensive. I mean, this is going to be years. People don't think to tell you what they need to tell you. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, you know, he really um, accentuates the four organizing features around trauma, which are number one and always number one is avoidance. Number two is uh, I'm going to figure out the system's going to figure out how to avoid going to the most painful places. Even the most transparent client has avoidance working in their system. And the next one is um, intrusion. It's going to intrude anyway. They're here because it's intruding in their life. And the next one is negative thinking. If I see those things in the office, I know there's probably trauma. And the other one is arousal. You're going to have some sort of arousal anxiety. The body is going to be escalated at some point, or it's going to have a sickness or something like that. So if you've got all that working against you, you have to kind of be directive and know where you're going to keep gently bringing them around. You don't make people go if they don't want to go somewhere that's what happened in the trauma but you gently bring them back I've got the roadmap I can get us there you know we'll gently just keep pursuing that uh, so that we can win against all the avoidance yeah there are
3: stages you know that you can talk about necessarily not necessarily in order but there's different stages where you probably address things like intimacy or sexuality yes or uh, stages where they think they are done right they might not be done (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we start doing, you start looking, doing history work. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you bump into that stage one. Stage three is you bump into the trauma and you may bump into the trauma really early. You may bump into the trauma at eighth grade. Okay. Whenever you bump into the trauma, that's when you deepen your work, you go down into it and people are having a lot of emotion. They're bringing up a lot of memories sometimes that they didn't remember and they're feeling better. And they feel sometimes good enough to go, okay, good, I, I'm good. Thank you so much. You're a great counselor. And we're at stage three. Out of nine. Yeah, out of nine. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, it, it, you
3: okay. have different, and, and uh, so I'm aware that you, this particular form of counseling has different types of interventions based on the stage that you're operating in as well. Is that right? You have like a resource
1: box for each stage.
2: Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So but, yeah. So, so I have a question about some of, mm-hmm. some of this. Um, having observed in some of my practice and in some of the students that I supervise as well, we'll notice somebody comes uh, and this happened this has happened several times at the at the addictions facility where we're at, where somebody comes, they're eager, they're excited, they have a lot of baggage, a lot of trauma, a lot of things to process, and all they want to do is tell their story and, mm-hmm. and get it out. And what I would have noticed is that when they when they're given that opportunity for catharsis super early, mm-hmm. they usually like flee the facility like within the week or yep. drop out really soon. And so you pick
2: the low hanging fruit, and they're done.
1: Yeah. So what I've been wondering is if it would be better to spend a lot of time talking about regulation skills, grounding skills, mm-hmm. recognizing that by talking about the trauma, gathering the history. There's a mm-hmm. lot of triggers there, and it seems like it'd be safe to have a lot of structure in place.
2: Yeah, not that just would be stage one. All your regular that can right. take. I've been in stage one for peop, for years with people. If we've got a serious diagnosis, I'm not talking about going fast on this stuff. Yeah. So yeah, you don't move into story unless you've got some good resources. We didn't mention that, but that's setting up the therapy box, the informed consent.
1: Okay. It's more than just what you're doing oh, to yeah. create the space, but it's also what you're doing with the client to mm-hmm. learn how they can take care of themselves.
2: Yeah, and you always stop because a person can be very regulated, a.k.a. Maybe even shut down, and you bump into the trauma, and all of a sudden, you know, they need regulation skills where they didn't before, and so you always stop. In fact, that's in the informed consent: is that every action is primary? That that's why you text me outside of office because if you have anything into a four, five, or six range of a dis- disturbance of zero to ten. I need the information. I need to know because that's how I gauge do I go faster? Do I go slower? And yeah, no, I'm going to move at the fastest stage I can without you losing regulation.
1: That makes sense. And yeah. it does make sense that with that sort of approach, it's just going to take time. Yeah. And that's a good thing to plan for.
2: Yeah. And people will want to spill their story on the first session. And so, um, you know, you you don't want to shut them down. They really, would really want to be there. But to say, here's... Here's where I'm sitting over here. For me to listen and go there, it feels disrespectful without giving it the time, the attention, setting up the safety. It feels like a re-injury could happen, and I'm paid to make sure that doesn't happen. So if you will walk with me a little, we will get there, and I know that's hard. Cause you came in and you just want to, you're finally ready. I'm done. I'm ready to get ready. But I've got a plan to get there to where we won't be doing what everybody else did. Just be a, um, outside, but I'm going to sit with it, go deep. We're both going to cry and, and it'll be healing at that point.
1: So tell me a little bit more about like the history of story informed trauma therapy and more about its origins. Where did they come from? How has it grown?
2: Yeah. Well, I think, um, Byron would have to answer that and I'll give you the number at the end. But okay. He'd have to answer where it came from, but I've watched That's him. put his
3: phone number out on the internet.
2: I, <laughs> I he, Here, Byron. He said we could. Oh really? He told me I could. Wow, good Because he doesn't have a website. Oh, uh, okay. So I, I, you know, I just watched him over the years, um, when he doesn't even know I'm watching him through the, my clients, the, my people that I sent to him and he just has learned. He re- does a lot of reading and he's just learned through a i think a very powerful desire to be a very efficient helper with people and i'm sure it's story related for him like Walt Disney <laughs> exactly and myself you know sure. you better know your story and why you're there very much so
1: speaking of your story <clears throat> what was it that drew you to this modality of treatment
2: oh wow really Really? Should I go there? Yeah, uh, totally up to Josh you. Josh knows my story. Oh, okay. Well, you can yeah. give
1: the, the
2: thesis statement version, uh, yeah.
3: the one-page version. Imagine if I asked you, why do you want to be a therapist? <laughs> I could tell you. Really?
2: <laughs> I'm not self-protected at all. Okay. So my clients are free to ask me questions. I tell them, you cannot answer questions. Uh, you can ask me why I want to know, and you can ask me questions. And so they'll ask me, why do you do what you do? And so I'm pretty transparent. In my own family of origin, my younger brother was a sexual predator, And I was in the position of having observed it as a 21-year-old and and powerless to stop it. And the family system was built to deny, 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 and minimize. And um, so I, it's it's a long, detailed story that I don't want to bore you with, but it was systemic and it was really painful and bad. And so every person I help... I feel like that's empowering. That's where God has provided my own healing path. I've done my own work and then I get this joy of actually being empowered in this stage of my life to purpose help. and meaning stage. The survivors. <laughs> yeah, the survivors when I was powerless earlier.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And the and the powerfulness that you got is the the power to to help people to heal people yeah. or to lead them to lead them out of their broken systems.
2: And it's not even power, it's like it's the, the information is powerful. I feel powerful because I know, I know what's really going on for them, and I can say, hey, this is what's happening, because they don't know. It's just mystifying while these symptoms are coming up or that they come in with these symptoms, and I can help them frame them. And then that I know where to go. That's why I think I like the stages, because I want to help them go to wholeness, complete wholeness. It feels like if we're working against their avoidance and their intrusions and stuff, that... If I know where to go, I can actually get them to being fully alive again and having healthy sexuality, everything. They can recapture that back through a systemic process that's made for that.
1: Yeah. Well, thinking about knowing where to go, you're talking about the power that knowledge brings and understanding these things and you, know, you have a client who all of these symptoms are happening, they're having all of these experiences and reactions and not even knowing why, not mm-hmm. knowing how to control them at all, but you take them to, through this nine-stage map and give a lot of language to it, I can imagine that being incredibly liberating and empowering
2: and mm-hmm.
1: would take a lot of the fear out of it. Even if the experiences are still there, understanding them, being able to predict them, roll with them, mm-hmm. seems like it would be incredibly relieving.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for both therapists and, I think, clients.
1: Yeah. So so you're drawn to this p- partly out of your own story mm-hmm. and you know how you choose to redeem that and to grow and, and exceed your, your own experiences there. What draws you to this modality compared to other modalities, say narrative therapy or mm-hmm. others?
2: But you know what? I think it's a really interesting blend of narrative therapy, existential, um, cognitive behavioral definitely because... Um, they're the uh, Part of the theory is that there's, there's two train tracks. In order to get the train down the road, you gotta have two tracks. You gotta have the feeling track, and some people are missing the feeling track. They come in, they can tell their story, they've dissociated from the feeling. And so that has to be dealt with. No, we kinda have to get to the feeling, or we don't get to the healing. The, the other track is some people t- to come in feeling like crazy, but they can't um, regulate enough to go, well, what did you learn? What did you learn? And they connect that to, oh, that's why I do this, and that's why I do that. And both of those are necessary for healing. <clears throat> so it's very cognitive behavioral in that that thinking track is, is vital. We don't get anywhere without it. Um, and it just, it just matches a lot of, uh, it's psychodynamic, you know? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. It integrates EMDR as well.
2: <clears throat> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. EMDR is a big part of it, mm-hmm. yeah. Because once you get into stage three, you start doing EMDR, yeah.
1: yeah. So, so there's some narrative narrative elements there. There's some cognitive behavioral mm-hmm. elements there. It sounds like there's probably some emotion focused emotional intelligence elements mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. with the the MDR very tangible, yeah. tangible elements there. Um, okay. Yeah. What are what are some other key features or? Yeah.
2: yeah. There is a stage six, which is like a wild card, and that is um, when uh, you actually come up with another diagnosis. You'll have a person come in, and that's where DID comes in. Stage six is when you realize, wow, um, it's deeper, it's more systemic, and and I've not always found that to work out that way. We might come in and we might discover the DID right away. But um, it can be that it comes up at a lot later stage, oh, there's this deeper layer of abuse and trauma. The restoration stages toward the end are, um, I think, unique in that uh, they're very systemic with homework. You can bring the spouse in and begin to work on very specific things that will help the person redefine um, everything about sexuality. Because... If they've been traumatized sexually, um, then they have never had sex without that trauma. You know, if that was their first experience, they've never had it without, and so they get the freedom through the healing, and then they get to redefine how, what it, everything means, and that's kind of fun.
1: Yeah. So now I'm brimming with lots more questions. Mm-hmm. So, so you mentioned DID, dissociative identity disorder, mm-hmm. and I know me and Josh have chatted a lot about. Dissociation right. as well in various <laughs> conversations. So what? Uh, what's the relation between trauma and dissociation? And I mean, it's a little bit of a blunt question mm-hmm. or a beginner question. Does every person that comes to see you, I imagine they all have post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Does every person also have DID or is that a more extreme case or is it sort of a spectrum
2: i think it's all a spectrum and ptsd is on that spectrum in fact that's the that's the new idea is that even add and add can be a part of trauma it can show up as add adhd but it's really a trauma you know josh does some testing and it's like no nope, right. you're not yeah. add <laughs> this kid
3: who looks like he has adhd <laughs> and you run the tests, and it's just like no his attention's good Mm. why does he fidget in his class why is he anxious well there's a hundred reasons if you're nine years old virtually everything looks like adhd
2: except for inattentive
3: subtype adhd that one mm-hmm. doesn't look like adhd yeah <laughs> and
2: you know he's had grown people come in and you know yeah. test for asperger's or something and it's like right. nope and then yeah. we find severe trauma severe trauma, yeah. Severe trauma. Yeah. yeah how
3: do you tell the difference between a kid with asperger's
2: and a kid that's dissociative yeah Uh, so it's on a it's on a scale and whether it's add was caused by trauma or not it's still inattention it's still the uh, inability to be present which is dissociation and so then you go to ptsd and even then further on the line you get did nos and then you get full-blown did i i say it's like a mirror and the mirror everybody comes to us as a broken mirror how much space is between the Pieces Mm -hmm. is dissociation.
1: Uh Oh, okay.
2: I like that. If the mirror is turned, you've got different parts of you, and that's classic DID. If you've got some programming as part of that, because the the perpetrators will program, you will have a piece, and you can't see me on podcasts, but now the piece is twisted so that they no longer float together easily. Um, Because the piece is just what I tell my clients is, with dissociation and DID, DID nos is just a lot of space. So I say, with unconditional positive regard, if we get all the pieces. If we have unconditional positive regard for all the pe- all the pieces of you, they will float together. They're magnetically charged. Now, does, They're meant to. Does come your
3: together. form of therapy integrate internal family systems?
2: Yeah, oh, you okay. uh, if you're working DID, you need okay. internal family systems gotcha. because these people work as a family. And you know what I find is brilliant. These Every people, single these they, the individuals uh, d- work d- as an d- internal the clients family. with DID. <laughs>
3: individual <laughs> client with DID.
2: No. I have so much respect for my clients because uh, who uh, who have DID because they're brilliant, and the systems that were built are brilliant. But they are family systems. They make a ton of sense. People go, "What's normal?" and I go. Everybody's the same, and everybody's totally different, and both mm-hmm. of those statements are true. Mm-hmm. The systems are perfect, and and they run so interesting. They're still maladaptive, but they play. They need their different parts of them, you know. And but the, the systems are all built very creatively and different. And,
1: and by system, you're old. talking about the the individual person's internal system, all, the all of the parts facets of, of them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And by unconditionally mm-hmm. positively regarding each of those different yes. facets of the person, yes. that brings the pieces into a more harmonious relationship with each other. Yeah.
2: So I use the Steve Stevens uh, conference table, and we get everybody around the conference table. Oh, that's
1: where you got it, Josh. I, uh, <laughs> I ask
2: my clients, if they want to, that they could build a very special room. And I've had clients build incredible rooms that have very um, specific detail to them that are meaningful to all of their different parts. And we go into that room every day and every time they come in. And what's fascinating to me is that over time we work in the room differently and it's, it's, I'm watching integration happen. Like usually it's like, okay, so we got everybody at the table. Well, let's check and make sure everybody's there. And then they stop doing that check. Why? Because they just know everybody's there. There's less and less like space between the people. I just feel like everybody's here. And then we have to use EMDR to talk, you know, amongst it. And then all of a sudden we don't, we just know, you know, it's just really beautiful.
1: That does sound really beautiful. And I know I've used a sort of primitive version of that, I think before with some people. And I think it was because of something Josh had shared with me, this idea of looking at that each person has the different facets, get all those facets together to talk to to each other, Mm -hmm. say, what do you need from each other? And things like that. Um, Everybody has something
3: to share. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody has a purpose and and we're talking about everybody in in terms of one person that has an internal system of people, you know parts, and so identifying and appreciating that, mm-hmm. validating it. Um, and then unification or integration. I like unification as a term. Oh, you know, Uh, I do too. I do too. It's more just because there's some classic triggers around negative Mm -hmm. approaches that have been used in like the 80s and 90s. Yeah, and I Um, know I'm old. Sorry. And so using a different term is just useful uh, in terms of avoiding triggers with our older clients. Mm -hmm. Unification might not be different, but it sure fits more integration works, but unification has mm-hmm. a little bit more of a welcoming feel. Well, <laughs> it can feel
2: like death. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I've mm-hmm. uh, the most powerful way I can work against that is when the s- pieces of a person come to the table, they no longer have a job. If we heal the trauma, they no longer have a job. If I no longer have a job, then I die. And there can be great resistance. And so um, finding that new identity. How, how important is this? This is a part of you, you know? So whereas this part might've been the person who went out and did hard things, guess what? That's going to be the part that's going to go out and do hard things with your story. What are you going to do? Maybe that's going to be the part of you that goes out and forms this support group or whatever else you've got on your dreams. And so that helps them go, Oh, I just, I just give them a new task. It is me. It's a facet of myself. Right.
3: Well, and a lot of times, you know, if we have a client with a part that seems to be very vengeful and very angry, and it's usually got a lot of negative association and a lot of negative cognitions Mm -hmm. around that part, um, they're usually not a very assertive person and post unification they are. Yes. Uh, It's amazing. (laughs) It's like, oh, that's where that was. Mm -hmm. I was just kind of, you know, there's all this assertiveness Mm -hmm. and all this protection and justice and, Mm -hmm. um, and passion was all tied up into something Mm -hmm. that had been painted with, you know, a a, a bad color. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) Well, it's, it's fragmented. The problem is it's fragmented piece of a self. And so of course it's going to be broken and, um, not whole and then kind of scary sometimes even, Mm -hmm. but being part of a whole, it's beautiful and important. To make the whole. Bringing
1: that, that whole person together, that that would be a really beautiful thing.
2: Right. And it is. It's one of the most fulfilling things. It's so beautiful. I mean, I, fulfilling would be the right word. It's almost like a really, really long saga that you get to be part of. You get to experience with the person, and it's just beautiful. And for clarity,
3: beautiful. This, therapeutic, uh, this therapeutic approach works for something as far down the spectrum as DID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And there's some yeah. people out there that won't believe that. Hmm. <laughs> but I mean, I can attest and witness like, yeah, I've seen it play out lots of yeah. times. And I want
2: to tell you, mm-hmm. just to be honest, I have to have Josh. Josh is <laughs> neurofeedback down the hall. And and Vander Kolk said this when I was in a, Last time I heard Vander Kolk, he goes, he said, uh, if I if you knew what I knew about neurofeedback. You would want a neurofeedback clinic down. uh, You would want somebody who does neurofeedback down the hall. And I'm like, I do.
1: How fortunate.
2: Yeah. And so some of my clients, if they come in and they're classic DID, and so there's no, like, we don't have to guess about that. It's like they walk in the door and you're like, okay, let's do this assessment because, wow, um, we got a lot of regulation, you know.
3: Well, you find yourself face-to-face with, you know, a 40-year-old individual who's sitting on the ground playing with toys like a (laughs) 6-year-old. You know,
2: (laughs) Or, it's not, a different, it's not subtle. A different person every <laughs> single time can't stay, can't say the same person, even sitting on the couch for 50 minutes. They keep flipping through and they'll have symptoms of like they're going, oh, wait a minute, oh, wow, I'm dizzy, or oh, wow. And then they're to another person right there in front of your eyes. It is not subtle. You know. You have to have EEG neurofeedback. I oh, don't sometimes know. I'm just looking how at their
3: brainwaves going like, oh, we just switched to so and so. It'll turn back. Yeah, you can see it on the <laughs> yeah. you can see it on the
2: screen. Yeah. I know. I went to consult a therapist in Portland whom I will not name and she's excellent. She really, really is excellent <clears throat> and older than me and she's a, she's uh, specializes in EMDR. And I went to consult and I began to tell her what we do. Uh, you know, between us with no feedback and everything. And then I shared a case with her and she goes, I can't help you, but do you have any openings? Because I could send somebody to you that I can't help. And I'm like, what are you saying? And she says, that you guys are doing stuff I can't do. I'm like, well, okay then, you know. I, sometimes I'm like, wow, this should move faster. I just want this get this fixed. And I did this. I consulted <laughs> somebody a few weeks ago and I said, here's what's happening and it's they're stuck on this for a year. And they just met, old therapist went, yep. Yep, that happens. And so what do I do? Well, you wait.
3: <laughs> we, we don't know how to be
1: very patient. We're not good.
3: <laughs> I know. I was like, right, I wanted like,
2: to go faster. Yeah.
3: <laughs> We're spoiled sometimes.
2: Yeah.
1: So the prospective therapist wanting to practice, practice this modality or the prospective client wanting to participate mm-hmm. Um, you've tossed around figures of like a long time, you know, mm-hmm. breaks for a year, things and things. Uh, how long can the average client expect to be in therapy uh, in the story informed trauma therapy model?
2: Yeah, I say three to five years. Okay. And there's a big difference between it being a neighbor that's abused you, and I'm talking sexual abuse, but um, it's, it's not always sexual abuse, but the story informed trauma therapy is really. More specific to sexual abuse, that's why I'm talking about it. Five years if it's like dad systemic long term. Or five years maybe if it's extremely brutal in a stranger. Okay.
1: I was also wondering as we're talking about dissociation, how a story informed trauma therapy might support somebody in recovery from addiction. Uh, one of my mm-hmm. developing theories about what addiction is, and there's a lot of theories addiction is a moral failure, it's a brain disease, it's psychological, it's environmental. I have the theory that it's all of those and also a dissociative response. Sure. Um, hearing, hearing people talk about their accounts of relapse, that they talk in terms of I, I'm no longer myself. I, I know that this is mm-hmm. bad. I know I don't want to do it. And I shift into this whole completely different mindset and I'm kind of out of control. And mm. and so I'm wondering if in addition to, you know, the the limbic system being activated, if there is actually a dissociation going on where the the addicted person is leaving behind their ideal self and shifting into a whole nother persona for the sake of sure. that their, their fix. But but I wonder, have you had any experience working with people in recovery?
2: Yeah. Yeah, um, sometimes people will come in and they get to stage three and they start having problems with. Um, now I'm turning back to alcohol or whatever. Um, ninety six to ninety eight percent of people who wrestle with addiction have trauma. I think that's interesting, and I think maybe the other four. There's been a lot s- of things that are like that percent white. don't don't remember. <laughs> Because yeah. you can get pretty far into trauma, and I mean, to this to work, and then people discover, oh, they don't remember, you know, and then they right. do. So, go ahead, Josh. There's
3: just not a lot of things in life mm-hmm. that are that black and white, you know. I mean, I bet there's a, a less correlation between diabetes and sugar than there is trauma and addiction. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's like sex and pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they go together. They really yeah, do. So. Yeah. There's not a lot of exceptions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so not, you, you know, I mean, there's a reason that people choose to do those dissociative things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is part of my theory, too, is that, yeah, 99%, if not more, people with identified addictions also have some sort of trauma. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little T trauma, not mm-hmm. a, like a brutal acute trauma, but something distressing, frightening, mm-hmm. overwhelming.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the, the first introduction to drugs or alcohol is a tremendous relief to the brain. And the brain goes, I have to have more because mm. they don't know how.
3: Oh, yeah. And I have a lot of specific theories about why people gravitate towards drugs and alcohol, too, because we get less and less efficient at dissociation when we get older. Mm. and The brain is in a patient who is not doing their work. Uh, is forced to get more creative and self re re traumatizing, mm. or drugs or alcohol in order to try to keep to keep the straight up
2: because yeah. your nervous
3: system wants to heal.
2: Mm-hmm. It does. It yep. wants to heal
3: biologically. I physics. The brain mm. must heal. There's mm-hmm. actually physics that force it to heal. Mm-hmm. So what stops someone from healing? They actively work unconsciously at not healing. Mm-hmm. They have to put actual effort into it.
1: Yeah. I imagine that has something to do with tolerance then too. If as people get older. Maybe their nerve it sounds like you're saying as people get older their nervous systems are trying are wanting to, to heal.
3: Well, it's and- wanting to heal and it's not good at dissociating anymore. We get we get less and less efficient at dissociation because of how much effort it is and our nervous system wants to balance. Okay. Uh, you know, when we dissociate the temporal lobes go out of phase. Right. We're talking about brain waves. It's work well, to, to dissociate. Yeah, and yeah, you you just just so you know, like there's some pr- physics physics principles that make the brainwaves sync up they they naturally want to sync up yeah. and the reason why they don't is because your brain constantly puts effort into dysregulating itself oh, okay and it's so not nec- it's not conscious at least not usually <laughs> so <laughs> the brain is so the brain is automatically putting effort an organizing feature
2: of trauma is avoidance okay. it's okay. Tiring.
3: association. and okay. it t- it takes up energy
1: so the, the, brain, the brain works to organize and to regulate.
3: The brain doesn't have because to. Physics requires, physics it, requires it. If, it. works to
1: not organize.
3: <laughs> if you relax,
2: you have to come in contact with a story. Yes. One of the ways Correct. to get the story to come back up is to get in a deeply meditative state. Don't do that. I mean, Don't and people, do it. People listening to this podcast do
3: might be like, you know, therapists <laughs> who do positive visualization. <laughs> they're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I was doing breathing exercises with one guy and they totally had a panic attack as soon as they got totally relaxed. Like dangerous. Some people are like, I've seen that. Yep. I didn't know what that was. Well, you can't actually get these people mm-hmm. thoroughly relaxed. It's so
2: dangerous. You, so you can see by the brain <laughs> would work against it. Mm-hmm. Um those, not going to those
3: Some of those temporal frequencies will, will sink and they will begin to integrate and they will begin to heal and they will then abreact and act out and re-traumatize themselves mm-hmm. and engage
2: in all kinds of behaviors like relapse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why it's, you're really careful as you go through it, that they got lots of resources and we've got neurofeedback. I have people's like, go get neurofeedback. Even if you go three times a week, if you have to, you get in there and you just have to do it. I mean, if you can afford it and it's not like I see rich people. You you uh, you can't afford it because
3: not doing it is more expensive.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You're going to waste years in therapy because we're going to keep coming back around and around and around, but you just get it done. And so you live in a little tiny place and you work really hard and you do what you have to do because we do cost money mm-hmm. um but but both josh and i are maxed on our, our pro bono slots l- pro bono <laughs> and, and our lower rates it's, it's you know a, it's, a more per,
3: it's a bigger percentage of my company that i wish it was you,
2: sit these, you look at these people go oh i just can't let this one go you no. know but yet they can't afford it but they gotta have neurofeedback. feedback they gotta they gotta get through the system
1: i hear that because the brain, it's it's not just working with history and story; it's working with the physical brain mm-hmm. and the inner right. workings of the brain. But a as well. lot
3: of education and a lot of containment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So I'm curious again about the the story aspect of story informed trauma therapy. Mm-hmm. What are some of the specific mechanics for using manipulating story? Um, mm-hmm. Like I've heard you've worked with like story and metaphor, and it sounds like there's some.
2: Gathering history
1: and then like reinterpreting the history, or yes. okay,
2: so it's more like doing the genogram. We want to go three generations back, living history, go on ancestry, do that deeply. And I'm amazed at how thematic the stories will be. And people don't know that people will come in with their genograms all done and go, Well, I didn't really find much, and then I look at them with uh, it with them. And you have to just read the breadcrumbs it takes. And that's why I'm in training for the second time, because it's such an art to seeing. you got to get super curious about everything. And I, I was not a curious person going into counseling, and I have had to become so curious. And I am genuinely curious right now. Now, why did all these kids in this family do what they've done. And what was happening in this family, you got six kids and you got a couple suicides, a couple attempts, you know, and what's going on in that family. And they never thought about being curious about that and everything looks fine. And, you know, there's some secrets or something. Yeah.
3: I I just wonder if there is, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, in an inverse, you know, correlation between curiosity and PTSD.
2: Oh yeah, and my because own theories. Well, you know? sure, it's avoidance. <laughs> it's avoidance. Right, we don't. We, we it, tend right? to have I'm less curious.
3: curiosity. We have a tendency to have far less imagination and mm-hmm. less hope. Yeah, and like mm-hmm. if I could, if I could instill three things in my clients, it would be curiosity, hope, and imagination. Mm-hmm. And people have disagreed with me, but I think they're prerequisites.
2: Yeah. Well, what does Van der Kolk say? The number one thing you want to see in your what What's the number one aspect you see in a in a client that gets better? Curiosity,
1: And I'm thinking about family systems, like closed family systems, Mm -hmm. like family systems where there's systemic abuse of various sorts Mm -hmm. or just
2: don't ask, don't tell.
1: Right. Or families that put a whole lot of effort into being jolly, happy, let's sing songs and, you know, drink a lot and not talk about anything Mm -hmm. because there's all these undercurrents. And again, maybe not always, you know, big T, you know, systemic sexual abuse, but Mm -hmm. definitely dysfunction, definitely codependency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Poor attachment styles. And the, the lack of curiosity or the lack of openness to talking about anything that deep or substantial mm-hmm. definitely seems like a mark of something alarming. Yes. So the moral of the story is be curious, Being ask curious. questions. Yeah.
2: So the, the genogram, we go into great detail. We'll spend a session on dad, a whole session on mom, maybe a session and a half on, on each of them. And they come away going, wow, I can see this family system coming at me like a freight train now. How did I not see it? Because it's the air that you grew up in. And I'm trying to get you to describe the air. And you're like, it's nothing. No, the air is something. We live at the bottom of an ocean of air. There's pressure to it. It does have uh, properties to it. We just don't know because we, we were built in it. you know. Yeah. And then we go into, um, you know, as we're doing the genogram, we're doing the cast of characters. Who, who's everybody that's in your movie? You know, what kind of character they have? How do they relate to each other? And then we begin the timeline, and it starts at birth. So they're like, well, I don't remember my birth. Seriously, you don't remember your birth? So go ask people. And that what I have people do is like listen to what your caregivers say. Write everything down they say. Don't ask any questions in the beginning. Just write down everything you say. It's really telling the way they tell the story. Maybe it's all about them. And not about me. You're meeting me for the first time. It was the first day you met me, and everything you talked about was how embarrassed you were because, uh, you know, your doctor was in there. You had to have this other doctor, and how they wouldn't listen to you, and how so and so wasn't there, and that really disappointed you. Nothing about me, maybe or whatever they say, and then asking questions like, "What kind of baby was I? Did I breastfeed? You know, you know, did I was I uh, did I call like those kind of things? Those can interrupt attachment. You want to find out what they remember and if they remember and what they remember Mm -hmm. and then you go from there first memories and you go and you explore, you go through the family albums, look at pictures, bring in the pictures. I'll have people get a picture that they really get attached to and I'll have them go get a a beautiful frame. Just go get a frame and get some little shoes. Shoes are so powerful. Sometimes I'll have shoes under my couch and pull them out because people were like, you know, I was abused at seven or whatever and I'll get the little shoes out and put them and all of a sudden they realize, I don't even say anything, but those little shoes on the chair across the room help them hold. I was so little where they didn't feel little at the time because something very grown up was happening to them, but they get to feel little and they break. Mm-hmm. So I'll have them get their picture and then these cute little shoes. And nobody knows that's therapy going on. That just looks like a cute little Pinterest thing on your dresser, you know, but it's something that they use to reconnect to their story.
1: Yeah. So it's allowing someone to go back and really <laughs> inhabit their or their early story Mm-hmm. Understand more about it, what was going on, and then to more properly more properly inhabit it, like the the little person gets to feel little or mm-hmm. you get to reclaim that feeling of being a child or reclaim that identity mm-hmm. of being a child.
2: You alienate. A lot of times mm-hmm. you alienate from the child one way or the other. I see some people have to come in and find their inner child. Some people have to find their inner adult. You know, maybe they're all child and they've not been parented, or they're all adult and they've lost that connection with that younger self.
1: And yeah. so what would you say is the ultimate goal of story informed trauma therapy? Like at the end of 5 years, how mm-hmm. is life better for the client?
2: Full healing.
1: Okay. Full healing. What does that look like? That
2: means that you will never be the same. You will never you will never be the you you would have been before the trauma, but you have a new you. You get to tell yourself your story instead of the abuser gets to tell the story and you hold it as it as it came out, as it was happening, but you've gone back and you've reassigned meaning to everything that happened, who was responsible, what that meant about you, and you get to tell yourself your story. And then moving forward, uh, what do I want to do with this? Because there are strengths as well as deficits. And we manage and heal the deficits, and we keep the strength. So you
1: you get to take ownership of your own story by by telling yourself your own story, the
2: Mm -hmm. story that
1: you want to tell or that you see that you can tell. The truth. The truth. Not the the narrative imposed on you by an abuser or an oppressor. Mm -hmm. but
2: Mm -hmm. But what I have come to find is truth. And some of the truth is that um, I have, you know, people told me what to do and in my abuse. And so I don't ever let anybody tell me what to do. I don't even tell myself what to do. So there's poor regulation, lack of self control, stuff like that. And so you get that back. And, but there's not a, a shameful thing to it, but it's not just, okay, I'm a victim and I healed and they're bad and I'm good. It's not black and white thinking. It's like, these are the things that I did to survive. And these are the things I'm going to lay down so that the strengths that I have won't be hampered by the maladaptive things that I've done. But I get to keep the strengths.
1: That does sound really exciting. So Dan, if there if you were sitting with a student, a counseling student, a social work student, a uh, prospective student who was interested, who's hearing you talk and saying, that's me, that's what I want to do. Um, what would you what would you advise as far as preparatory steps or things to consider, mm-hmm. reasons Reasons a counselor should not do this work if something's going on with them. Mm-hmm. What, what, do you, what do you think? Get
2: story-informed trauma therapy yourself. Go find someone Go who works that yourself. way. Go be a client Go be a client, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and get some experience how it feels to have somebody walk you through your story.
1: Yeah, okay. mm-hmm. experience from you, from Byron Kaler, from... Oh, there's lots the, of people out there trained.
2: I mean, there there are a handful, I should say. There, it's not like there's just me and a couple other. I'm in a class right now with well, about we, we 10 people. we refer a lot
3: of people. So yeah. the, there's, there's a good list out there.
2: However, you know, mm-hmm. the people who do it, it, it's easy to go to a class. I went to a class. And, and on top of having watched Byron through the people that I was in contact with. And it's, it's hard to learn. It's hard. It's uh, deeply systemic and very detailed. And it's an art. It's an art form. You know, you got you to just have experience. Kind of sometimes, I think this is true. I heard once, I think it takes 10 years to be a good therapist, and I think yeah, that's I true. I believe <laughs> I feel more and more stupid every day, and, yeah. and I'm like, hopefully I'm getting well, and smarter. I, I
3: got supervision from someone who is psychodynamic. I took a lot of Byron's classes. Mm-hmm. I even took the, the <laughs> workshop that you referred to that was a four-day workshop, the mm-hmm. trauma-informed therapy, um, and it's not something that is really my bread and butter. I find playing mm-hmm. a very specific role uh, at my kind of, you know, young adult state mm-hmm. <laughs> and that if I do more trauma informed work, it'll be something I'll have to grow into. Um, but I, I just, I choose to play a specific role. It's very, it's very detailed. It's very complex mm-hmm. and you have to master a lot of things before you can master the whole thing. Exactly. Um, it's I mean, very it's, tedious. it's like, do you want to learn EMDR? Okay. Do you want to learn family systems? Do you mm-hmm. want to learn, you know, trauma counseling? Do you want to learn, you know, resourcing EMDR? Or do you want to do some, hypnotherapy, you know, it's like, well, you got to be master at all these things. You, there's mm-hmm. that and a dozen other things you've got to be really good at. Yeah. Uh, Cause you're going to need them all. And I know that you have resource boxes for every stage mm-hmm. and there's a long list yeah. All kinds of interventions you have to learn for each stage. And it is a long list. It is very. That's why I'm in <laughs> yeah. it for
2: a long right. training. But you know what? We are with a group of therapists. There's about 10 of us. And a, there's a handful of us who are going to start meeting on Thursdays at lunch. And we're just going to cross train as we right. go along. And it's language and it's giving examples. We, we're creating a space where we have confidentiality for us to really share and sharpen and... Um, I think that would be a good piece of advice for a young therapist is go where there are like-minded people so that you can cross-train. I love having Mm -hmm. different modalities, but you got to have a few who are on the same track with you.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like the, the prospective student interested in this should first go be a client. And per- preferably go be a client in this modality so they can experience what it feels yeah. like, what it's like, get familiar with it. Be a counselor. It uh, mm-hmm. sounds like being a psychodynamic counselor or being a cognitive behavioral counselor, that's a good start. Being mm-hmm. a family systems counselor would be a great start. Mm-hmm. And then just start layering over mastery or at least competence in these mm-hmm. other areas. Um, always thinking about trauma, always reading. And, yeah. Um, Working with other people who are working in the same track. Mm-hmm. And then it sounds like there's a couple of capstone courses that are offered independently. Like, yeah, you might want to do EMDR first.
2: Yeah, EMDR would be first. EMDR would be and first. Then, yeah.
3: And then once you're a competent mm-hmm. counselor and you've also learned EMDR, then you can think about doing the mm-hmm. trauma informed workshops.
2: EMDR is more than um, the back and forth of the eyes and stuff, it's a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking about trauma that you're going for the lies. And you have to have the – it's the two tracks. I've got to have the emotion and i got to have the – got to go for the cognitive distortion.
1: Okay. Well, sounds like our students have their work cut out for them if they want to do this. But it does sound like it's well worth the work, well <laughs> worth the struggle. Um, sounds like a, a very long journey. I'm yeah. thinking – I'm thinking, I'm like making, you know, literary jokes in my head of like, you know, like the nine stages, like the nine mystic points. And, you know, you, the hobbits must go venture through all of this <laughs> territory to gain this prize of being able to do this work. But yeah. what marvelous work. Mm-hmm. So, um, we're going to have to wrap it there for time's sake. Um, but uh, Diane, thank you for being here. Uh, if a listener wanted to get a hold of you, what is a number email or well, you don't have a website.
2: Yeah <laughs> um, but
1: where could someone find you?
2: Well, I wanna because I said I would give byron's number out. okay. He said I could. okay, okay. so he's Byron he's yeah, call him, don't call me. I, I, <laughs> my practice is full. I'm just kidding i'll give my number. but Byron is five zero three two seven seven nine seven eight zero that's five zero three two seven seven nine seven. Eight zero, he's in uh, Milwaukee.
1: Okay,
2: I'm in Vancouver, and I'm giving you my number: zero nine. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Totally kidding. I'll put it in the liner
3: notes. <laughs> my
2: number is three six zero nine zero nine eight eight two seven. If you want to see somebody in our part, I have an intern. Okay, um, and she's a George Fox intern. Okay, oh, did I say that out loud? Here At Multnomah. Oh,
3: that's okay. She is a George Fox. We intern. love Fox. Um, she You've had Multnomah yeah,
2: Yes, she started yeah. out as a Multnomah and okay. I got to know her. So, you know, you can see people who are in the middle of getting trained. And there's other, there's two other therapists who um, use this modality in the practice where I work. And
3: yeah. then we know some. Across town, and there's a yes, handful. we know so we, we town. give a lot of referrals. So there's there's a list, <clears throat> maybe not a formal yeah. list, but we have a list. And if
2: you can get into Josh, you know, go for it. But well, um, and, and good luck on that. We
3: also yeah. refer out a lot. So if people have questions, they can always contact my office manager
0: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, get information 360 553 1350. And we probably talk to three or four people a day that we never meet. That's pretty normal for us, we don't mind. Mm-hmm. All right. I don't
2: have an assistant, so that's why I don't have business cards or a website.
1: There we go. That (laughs) makes sense. It's just me. I need to hire myself an assistant.
2: Yeah.
1: anyway, so that's where the resource is, dear listener, and peruse that as you will. And thank you again for listening. Um, Please do feel free to follow the podcast on SoundCloud, on iTunes, leave comments, leave feedback, leave reviews. And because we love to discuss all of these things. Diane, thank you very much for your time and for your work and for serving their community in the way that you do. Thanks, Reese. Absolutely. And we will be back with more Smart Council.
0: Please be sure to rate and review Smart Council on iTunes and SoundCloud. We love your feedback, so let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Counsel on Facebook at Podcast, on Twitter at smartcounsel 601 and you can email your questions to smartcounselpodcast at gmail.com. Josh can be found on the web by searching neurofeedback care. Reese can be found at newpatterncounseling.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This episode was mastered by Julie Patterson. Smart Counsel has been produced by Reese Pasimio and Joshua Moore.